0: When you hear how much was at risk, it's amazing that the treasures that were recovered from Nazi looters ever survived the Second World War. The most important works of art
1: by Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, all the household names that people around the world know, loaded onto trucks with no wrapping, no protective measures taken, sometimes a tarp, but there were times that these works of art were moved and it was
0: drizzling. Robert Edsel of the Monuments Men Foundation updates us on the ongoing efforts to find and repatriate the art that went missing during the war. For great cities to explore in the U.S., there's nothing like San Francisco. Coming up, we get tips for exploring the sites from Market Street to Land's End.
2: Within seconds of getting out of the hustle and bustle of the city, you're you're at this beautiful where the city meets the sea, really, on the Pacific Ocean, and it's really extraordinary.
0: It's a local's guide to San Francisco and the greatest treasure hunt in history on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. On today's Travel with Rick Steves, we'll get ideas for sightseeing in San Francisco at many of the places its residents like to show off for visitors. A local guidebook author gets us started on 100 Things to Do in San Francisco a little later in the hour ahead. Until the Second World War, it seemed no army had really thought of protecting the monuments and art treasures of a country when it's at war. But the Allied Forces Monuments Men dedicated their efforts and sometimes their lives to protecting the patrimony of the Western world. Robert Edsel is the founder of the Monuments Men Foundation. He's back with us right now and travel with Rick Steves to tell us what's new with the efforts to repatriate lost or looted treasures from World War II. Robert's just released a new book. It's The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History, and it's aimed at sharing his story of the Monuments Men to students and younger readers. Robert, thanks for joining us.
1: Great to be with you, Rick.
0: Your story, The Monuments Men, has been such an inspiration, and this new book, The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History, kind of complements earlier books that you've written. How is this one different This is the first
1: opportunity I've had to tell the entire story in one book. And when I say entire story, not just what the Monuments Men did in Northern Europe and Italy, which it took two separate books to do that before, but also to include almost 150 images of not just photographs of what they were doing during the war, but also some of the key documents that they had at the time that I thought young readers in particular would enjoy seeing, the names of people that had volunteered in a fire brigade to try and save a church, or the notes that Jim Roemer, one of the key monuments men, hurriedly wrote down descriptions of Rose Vallant, the great French heroine with whom he worked on trying to find the location
0: of so many thousands of works stolen from France. I was enamored with the first book, The Monuments Men, but I actually found this book easier to read. Maybe that's just a comment on my intellect because it's designed more for younger readers, but I just thought this was engrossing. It read like a story and it helped me Imagine the immediate challenge and the the potential disaster of having all of the great art treasures of our Western civilization at risk as Europe was uh, in this horrible World War II. You've got an image of Uffizi masterpieces, paintings by Raphael, Rubens, Giotto, Botticelli's Primavera, all stacked sloppily in a castle outside of Florence. And then you mentioned how it was a simple custodian that was in charge of taking care of that art, the art that defined Florence and the Renaissance. Tell us about that scene.
1: It's really hard to imagine. Uh, We think about the fragility of works of art and museum docents, well-intended, telling you, don't point, don't use flash photography, don't stand so close. And then you see photographs like the one you mentioned where the most important works of art by Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, Raphael, Botticelli, all the household names that people around the world know, loaded onto trucks with no wrapping, no protective measures taken, sometimes a tarp, but there were times that these works of art were moved and it was drizzling, and then offloaded at villas to try and get them out of the cities where they feared fire might damage them, just sitting on their side of the
0: frame, leaning up against the wall. So this wasn't Nazis trying to steal art or anything like that. This was local people who appreciated art realizing the city will be bombed next week and there might be a fire and we might lose everything, so we've got to just desperately get the treasures out of harm's way. Is is that right?
1: That was the initial concern on the part of museum curators and directors but they didn't take into account the speed with which the ground warfare could move, mm. and dramatically in Italy, the ground warfare advanced up the peninsula so quickly that these works of art were trapped in these villas, and it was too late to try and move them back into the city. Some of them were in villas behind enemy lines, and the Nazis saw the opportunity and stole ah. more than a thousand of the most important Italian works of art
0: in the world and put them on trucks headed north towards Nazi Germany. Because Hitler was a madman, but he was a madman who had an interest in art also, wasn't he?
1: He had a mission. Uh, He was a failed artist uh, and architect who believed he had been unfairly judged. He believed that the jurors who refused to uh, allow him admittance into the Vienna Academy of Fine Arts were Jews. He accused him of that, and he had this... uh, Prejudice and bias. You show a painting by Hitler in 1914. They're workmanlike. I mean, they're the kinds of things you might see around the Notre Dame, you know, with people selling (laughs) them, but they certainly didn't appear to be interesting against the backdrop of the great
0: German expressionist painters of the time. So, but you have Hitler's joy he took in plundering art. What was Hitler's vision for all the art? I I think he was hell-bent on winning this war. When it was all done and he controlled Europe, what was he going to do with the art?
1: Well, Vienna's influence in Europe, which we know how significant that is today and what an art center it is, would have been greatly diminished because those were the people that rejected him. Mm -hmm. The hometown that he came from, Linz, was a town that was going to be built up and be one of the cultural capitals of Europe. And at the center of the city was going to be this great museum known as the Gemalde Gallery Linz or Fuhrer Museum as people referred to it. But, of course, that presented a problem in 1938 after his first state visit to Italy and him walking through the Uffizi Gallery and the Pitti Palace across the Vasari Quarter. When this idea really fully emerged, he saw the great collections of the Medicis and realized, as he felt, an artist among artists, uh, <laughs> we should have this in, in lens. But, of course, so many of the works were already in private collections, and that was a problem which the war was
0: going to solve for him. I've been to Linz. Talk about a forgettable little town. And uh, <laughs> that was going to be the the home of... That's on the Danube up by Passau, you know, up, upstream that's from right. Vienna. Right. I know Hitler didn't like modern art. He thought it was degenerate art and so on, uh, modern art in the early 20th century. What kind of art did Hitler like?
1: He liked 19th century Austrian and German painters, people that weren't necessarily unqualified or unskilled, mm-hmm. but you'd find them predominantly in German museums. They mm-hmm. were... The German um, romantics? Exactly. And mm-hmm. they're, they're not well represented in museums in the United States. But, right. you know, this was the passion that he had was to try and project this image to Germans about them being this Uber race. And he felt these painters, like himself, had mm-hmm. been unfairly maligned by art critics and that he could see things nobody else could see and yeah. likewise considered the great impressionist painters like Van Gogh, Monet, Degas that there was something wrong with them, that they couldn't paint nature as it existed. And so those works of art were removed from German museums, many destroyed because he felt they were going to spoil the minds of the Germans.
0: Imagine how poor our world would be if such treasures as the Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's David had been destroyed during World War II. Robert Edsel is with us on Travel with Rick Steves to remind us of the important work that civilian and military men and women played in protecting Europe's patrimony. They also found art treasures that were stolen by Nazi forces. Robert founded the Monuments Men Foundation, which continues to recover items that were taken as war souvenirs. His website is robertedsel.com. Robert, the mission of the Monuments Men has been called the greatest treasure hunt in history. That's the name of your book. Who were they and what did they do? These are museum
1: curators architects, some were artists themselves, many uh, professors, school teachers, librarians who volunteered for service during World War II to protect the great cultural treasures of Western civilization from destruction, both by Allied bombing and artillery, and then as they got on the ground and they discovered that so many of these works of art, and we're talking about millions of cultural treasures, were not where they should be because they'd been looted by the Nazis, and it set off what truly was the greatest treasure hunt in history, their effort to try and find these things. And that's what I've tried to do is capture the excitement and the terror of their experience. Just a handful of men and Hmm. uh, one key woman as they went into these salt mines and caves and castles, not knowing whether they were going to be booby trapped, whether they were going to be killed. Of course, two monuments men were killed during combat. And so I've tried to write this book as if the reader is sitting there, by their side, knowing no more than they know as they piece these clues together to try and track down this priceless work of art.
0: So when we think of World War II closing down and uh, all the Allies are converging on Berlin, the Russians coming in from the east, coming up through Italy when the Americans crossed over from Africa, and then, of course, D-Day and making that trail from Normandy all the way to Berlin, we can see the Germans contracting and retreating and pulling back with them all of their treasures and so on. What was the process during this period with the Monument Men? Were they sweeping up behind this violent parade and and grabbing what they could and saving it? Or were they on the front line protecting things as the battle was going? I'd like to kind of envision what were they doing when everybody else was fighting their way to Berlin.
1: The concept initially was that they would be advising, and they wouldn't be on the front line, but it was impossible for them to do their jobs to try and keep Allied engineers from tearing down a church that was damaged but could be repaired from anywhere other than on the front line. So they got closer and closer and finally were there with the troops as they would go into these towns and cities, and they would set markers indicating that these buildings were out of bounds, hmm. which initially... There was a great deal of concern that there'd be a riot among some of the soldiers about the idea of being forced to sleep outside. But much to their uh, great satisfaction, when they explained why it was important to show respect for these other countries' cultural treasures and not run the risk of starting a fire in a wood living room that might burn down an important chateau or villa, a historic chateau or villa, they had support from the troops. As they pushed further and further in through the Western Allied countries' that were liberated, they could see works of art like Michelangelo's Bruges Madonna and, of course, the Ghent altarpiece in Mm. in Ghent, Belgium, were gone. They were missing, and it set off this treasure hunt. And when they arrived in Germany, they started discovering in caves and castles and salt mines, monasteries, works of art by the thousands, uh, many belonging to German museums that had been hidden to try and keep them safe from Allied bombing, Mm. and then as they got further and further into Germany, the Motherlowe Discoveries, works of art that have been stolen for Hitler's museum.
0: Wow. I can just imagine if you're an art lover and you volunteered to be on this Corps of, of Monuments Men and you're following the Allies as they push, push, push back to Berlin and you come into Bruges and you know there's a Michelangelo statue in the church and the first thing you want to do is go to that church and see if the Michelangelo statue is okay or even if it's there and then you find it and it's gone. That must have been. And the just...
1: astonishing thing about that situation was the Nazis had stolen it just 10 days before the Allies entered the city. I mean, you know, you think about thievery and people realize get in, get out quickly. Yeah. But during World War II, the Nazis had seven years to loot these countries and they did it right down to the last minute.
0: Robert Edsel tells a new generation the stories of the brave men and women who rescued the art treasures of Europe from Nazi plunder. His latest book is The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. Robert's earlier titles include Saving Italy, Rescuing Da Vinci, and The Monuments Men, which was adapted into a movie by George Clooney. You can listen to Robert's prior appearances on Travel with Rick Steves. We have links to our archives with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com radio. Coming up, we remember the last of the Monuments Men, and we consider just what to do with World War II souvenirs that you might find stashed away up in the attic. There's more with Robert Edsel in just a minute on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest, Robert Edsel, is the founder and chairman of the Monuments Men Foundation. He tells the true stories of the 11 men and one woman who risked their lives to preserve churches, libraries, monuments, and works of art that we travel to Europe to enjoy today. His latest book is appropriate for school-age readers, and it's called The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. I would think World War II was kind of a, a new ball game as far as destruction of great art because previously, you know, battles would be fought on a battlefield, and now, battles were fought by demoralizing entire societies, by firebombing them, you know, dropping so many bombs on them that the cities are destroyed. And, of course, uh, when it's all-out war, you don't really care about this church compared to that gallery or or this palace. World War Two was entering into a new stage of destruction of culture, wasn't it?
1: You're absolutely right. And this was the great realization of George Stout, who was a conservator of works of art at the Fogg Museum at Harvard, who was old enough, he'd fought the last year of World War I, and he watched with horror the events you described in in Spain's Civil War with the advent of firebombing and realized, convinced that there was going to be a Second World War, Mm. that the Mm. great risk here was that the Allies might win the war but in the process become the goats of history for destroying Mm. all of the great treasures of Western civilization. So the initial effort was to try and work with Allied commanders to steer bombing away from cultural treasures and monuments. Of course, these men and women had been educated at institutions in Europe. They knew where these things were. But as they got on the ground, you know, it's the difference between planning things on paper and then getting there physically and having to wing it because there was so much destruction there really was no rule book at that stage. And when you consider all that they did save, it's really miraculous that we can go to these museums today, as you mm-hmm. said, and have them appear largely as they did before the war. But, of course, they couldn't have looked like that from 1939 to 1945. And you're dealing
0: with a crazed dictator who, whose attitude was, I know when you take the great palace in Munich, the residence, his attitude was, this is going to get destroyed. Let's take photographs so after the war we can rebuild it accurately. You know, it just seems like a reckless way to take care of your patrimony, but I guess those photographs actually were ultimately helpful because the residence was bombed, and today it's rebuilt according to the photographs that Hitler's men took.
1: Well, you're right, and that palace was actually saved by a monument's man, John Skelton, who there's a wonderful watercolor drawing of him in one of the hallways of the Palais Residence in recognition of the fact that he single-handedly rolled lumber down a river and drove along the river, watching it to make sure no one was going to steal it, to build a temporary roof over the great Steppenhaus stairwell there where Tiepolo's extraordinary fresco, I mean, something, as you so well know, on par with uh, Michelangelo's Sistine
0: Chapel ceiling. And it survived today because of him. The Ponte Vecchio in Florence was famously saved by some commander that talked the Germans into bombing areas around the bridge rather than the bridge itself because they had to stop people from being able to cross over it. And the beautiful city of Colmar, uh, just by the luck of who was making decisions who might appreciate that town, escaped the destruction while neighboring towns were totally destroyed in the war. Have you found inspirational stories like that across Europe?
1: Oh, it goes on and on. And one of our great monuments men, Harry Etlinger, who passed in uh, in late November, 92 years old, a German-born Jew that immigrated to the United States when he was 13 years old. He had to flee his own country. He was from the town of Karlsruhe. He lived three blocks away from the museum there, an important museum, and uh, was never able to visit because it was off-limit to Jews. And he was drafted into the army at 18, was headed for the Battle of Bulge at 19. And on his birthday, they pulled him out of the Truck Congo, and he didn't know why for several months, but they needed translators, German speakers to look through documents to indicate where missing works of art might be. And that was how he became a monuments man. And the extraordinary conclusion of his story in later 1945, he descended into a salt mine in Kokendorf. And among the thousands of works of art he found there was a self-portrait by Rembrandt, the most important painting from the hometown that was three blocks from where he grew up that he'd never been able to see. And a few years ago, the town invited him back as their guest to thank him for what he'd done to save the works in Karlsruhe, and they'd put labels on all the paintings in the museum that had been found in this salt mine by Harry Ettlinger and the others, and it was practically every painting in the museum.
0: Oh, and it was an honor to talk to Harry Ettlinger with you on a previous interview that we did here on our show, and people can check that out in our archives.
3: We have to human being, and we have to respect each other in our culture, or we will no longer exist as an organized form of civilization.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsel. He's the author of The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History, The Story of the Monuments Men. So, Robert, uh, the last of the Monuments Men with Harry Ettlinger have passed away. It's been a long time since 1951, when they're immediate work was finished in the field in Europe. But the Monuments Men Foundation continues to work with that same sort of mission. How is the mission going on today? What's the ongoing work of the organization?
1: The Monuments Men Foundation has had uh, some tremendous successes here recently in 2015 as a consequence of a bill that we were successful in getting passed in Congress, no small feat, signed into law by President Obama. The Monuments Men and Women of all 14 nations received the Congressional Gold Medal at the Capitol, the highest civilian honor our nation awards. That was a joyous moment to see mm. four monuments officers there. Harry Ettlinger received it on behalf of all the monuments, men and women. We have continued to locate and return missing works of art from tapestries to important paintings, drawings, uh, sculpture, a vase to countries in Western Europe, some collectors, some have gone to our own national archives in Washington, <laughs> D.C. We receive a lot of tips and leads from people that may have something brought home by a soldier at the end of World War II. Our toll-free tip line is one It's World War II art. You know, what's
0: interesting is the great generation has passed, and there were people in the great generation who probably did a little looting on their own and they've got these treasures hidden away in boxes or up in their attic, and now their kids inherit this stuff, and it might have historical value. It might need to go back into the public treasure chest, and have you found that this is actually a potential for locating some of this art?
1: Oh, the Monuments Men Foundation's returned some 30 objects, and every single one of them was a circumstance you described, a soldier that brought yeah. it home, huh. won it in a poker game. Yeah. Kids found it, didn't know what it was, were concerned maybe they're going to get in trouble and contacted us. And the foundation doesn't charge anybody for its work. We just want to illuminate the path home and get these things back where they belong.
0: What's that phone number again?
1: It's one 866 which is W-W-I-I-A-R-T.
0: And I understand that you've been uh, working with a very, very popular World War II museum in New Orleans.
1: The National World War II Museum in New Orleans, the third most popular museum in the United States, according to TripAdvisor, the the largest tourist draw in New Orleans, certainly. It's an extraordinary place. Later in this year, they will break ground in their uh, capstone building part of their $400 million campus, the Liberation Pavilion, and on the ground floor, we're recreating a salt mine to have what will be called the Monuments Men Gallery and preserve Mm -hmm. these men and women's remarkable experience as authentically as we can for some of the 750,000
0: visitors that walk through that museum every year. Nice. Robert is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. His latest work tells the stories of the World War II Monuments Men to a new generation of readers, and it's called The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. There's more about the ongoing work of the Monuments Men Foundation, including a list and photos of still-missing artworks at monumentsmenfoundation.org. It's hard to imagine during World War II that there was a, a scramble to move to protection or to, to loot and take to Berlin or to just destroy all this great art in Europe. Robert, when you think about this turmoil relating to the art, you've got amazing images. I mean, in your book, there's a picture of the winged victory, the victory of Samothrace on a pulley and a sled being pulled out of the Louvre Museum. What was going on there?
1: The curators at the museum were very fearful that Allied bombing might hit the roof of the Louvre and damage this extraordinarily fragile sculpture. It looks like it's one piece of marble, but it's actually thousands of shards of marble that are pieced together, and they lowered it on wooden skids down the central stairwell of the Louvre as you mentioned, and then crated it up and moved it on several occasions to villas outside,
0: or to châteaux outside the city of Paris to try and keep it safe. And that fragile, precious piece of over 2,000-year-old sculpture, it survived that trip and, and it ended up back in its spot, the same spot at the top of the stairway in the Louvre.
1: It did. And, you know, this was repeated at museums throughout Europe. The Michelangelo's great sculpture of David, 16 feet tall, inside the academia. Florentine officials worried that that might be damaged by the roof collapsing. So they entombed it in brick. A photo I I have in in my new book uh, looks like a missile silo. They entombed David in brick. Yes, it looks just like a missile silo, and the sculpture we refer to as the slaves in the foreground are also
0: entombed in brick. Not to be outdone, uh, Leonardo's Last Supper was entombed in uh, sandbags.
1: Truly, we throw the word miracle around in society today, but that's a miracle that that painting survived. An Allied bomb landed some 88 feet east of uh, the east wall of the refectory. It obliterated the east wall. The roof collapsed. The painting and the wall survived only because uh, Milanese officials had placed wooden scaffolding supported by metal braces and sandbags on both sides of the north wall on the what-if chance some vibration might damage the wall, never mind a bomb landing there. And it would be two years before anybody would know, once they removed all these things, was the wall going to stand or was it going to
0: collapse? The Mona Lisa even was evacuated, wasn't it?
1: It was taken out of Paris in an ambulance. It was the only work of art that had its own form of transportation, and they, in fact, sealed it up so tightly in the back of the ambulance, it almost suffocated the custodian that was with the painting. And not to be outdone, that picture was moved on five more occasions during the war to try and keep it out of harm's way and theft. So this was repeated Over and over at the castle of Neuschwanstein, where some 22,000 important works of art stolen from France were hidden that the Monuments Men found. Hmm. Works from the Uffizi and the Pitti Palace hidden in a jail cell in northern Italy and also a carriage house. uh, Some of the great sculpture by Michelangelo and Donatello. So when we go to these museums today in Europe and stand in front of these masterpieces... Virtually every one of them was hidden somewhere, whether it was stolen or not, in some obscure place (laughs) far distance from what you'd think of as a safe place
0: for a fragile work of art. As this whole story starts to come together in my mind, it's like everybody's scrambling, knowing that destruction is on its way, and people are squirreling things away, filling the basements of Neuschwanstein cutting precious paintings out of their frames and rolling it up like carpets and tucking it away over here. Even in Berlin, you've got a photograph of this giant subterranean space outside of town. In the town of Merkers,
1: uh, there was a salt mine. Many of these salt mines have been worked for a 1,000 years, and Germans worried about the Soviet Red Army overtaking Berlin, evacuated at the last minute some of the most important works of art in history, including uh, the bust of Nefertiti, that were moved to this salt mine 2,500 feet below ground, along with the entire contents of the German Reichsbank, basically the equivalent of finding Fort Knox underground. And the monument's men had a clue that took them beneath ground, and they found what today would be worth almost $8 billion worth of gold, and more value than that in these great paintings and sculpture that today
0: occupy Museum Island, the great museums in Berlin. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Robert Edsel. His book is The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. It tells the story of the Monuments Men and how they did so much to save the great art treasures of our Western civilization. Robert, when you look back, of course it was a scramble and, and everybody was trying to just save their, their lives with all this uh, horrific uh, World War II action. But was there enough money dedicated and energy dedicated to minimize the damage to all of this art when all the dust was settled? Or do you just kind of weep as a person who appreciates and loves art for the lost opportunities had they had a little more money and and energy to to do the job? Uh, It seems like they did a remarkable job.
1: They did. And it's easy to be critical. I think we have to say no army, no government had ever tried to comprehensively fight a war on the one hand and think about protecting cultural treasures at the same time. This was unprecedented. So the mere fact that the allies uh, led by the United States and Great Britain even thought of it and dedicated resources to it Mm -hmm. is in and of itself the high watermark for the protection of cultural treasures in the history of civilization – Over and above that, at the end of the war, when they found and returned, ultimately, 4 million stolen objects, the point was that they did return them in a break with thousands of years of civilization. To the victors did not belong the spoils of war. Mm. And that is something to celebrate and be very, very proud of as an American. Because a nation
0: in the heat of combat can screw up when it comes to taking care of uh, great art treasures. When the United States was involved in the Iraq War, art historians knew that the great, great museum in Baghdad would be at risk. And the way I understand it, we put our energy into protecting the, the oil fields more than in protecting the art.
1: Well, you're right. You're completely right. In 2003, uh, you know, we don't get into the whether we should or shouldn't have been into Iraq. The question simply is, if you're an invading force, what responsibility do you have to protect not just their museum, but their national archives, their national library? And I think the answer among people on both sides of the aisle is the answer is it's absolute. You are the policing force. You have to do that. And this is what motivated the creation of the Monuments Men Foundation was to make sure that the high watermark that was set during World War II with a handful of men and a couple of women with no tools of technology, that they could do what they did in a war that claimed the lives of 65 million people. Surely we could do a better job in conflicts today. And that message is why I've written these books, why we worked so hard to have a film made by George Clooney, and to raise the awareness in Washington among elected and appointed leaders to not make those mistakes that we made in Iraq in 2003. Because that was a huge loss in Iraq for all of us. It was, and it, and it's not just a loss of the physical treasures, but we upset and, and lost the goodwill of a billion people around the world that fell victim to stories that said Americans don't care about this because it's, Islamic cultural treasures are not part of our heritage. That's nonsense. We didn't think about it. If they'd have been Judeo-Christian treasures, we would have made the same mistakes. So it's important to win over people. And I think what we've learned through the experience of the monuments, men, is if you show respect for their cultural treasures, you've gone a long way towards demonstrating good faith. Is a piece of art worth a
0: human dying for?
1: It's a great question, and it's a dramatic question. And of course, especially with younger audiences, there seems something romantic about running into a fire and running out with a painting, in particular if it was, say, Leonardo da Vinci's Mona Lisa. But I think Monuments Man, Dean Keller, who I profile in, in uh, my new book, really said it best that no work of art is worth the life of a single American boy, but risking your life for a cause is absolutely worth it. So the two Monuments officers that were killed, they didn't want to die. They didn't want to lose their lives any more than any of the soldiers did. But they believed that preserving these cultural treasures for future generations was a cause worth fighting for and risking your life.
0: Because these things of beauty are things that really define us as a civilization.
1: They're the guideposts on the road of civilization's path that remind us who we are, and we would be a lesser civilization without these things of beauty, and of course, they haven't survived by accident. Right. People before us mm-hmm. made sure
0: and risked their lives that uh, future generations would be able to enjoy them. And when we travel through Europe and when we wait in line to see those great museums, and we are just inspired by the, the beautiful works of people over the centuries, we can be thankful for the Monuments Men. Robert Edsel, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your work with the Monuments Men, and uh, best wishes with your book, The Greatest Treasure Hunt in History. Thank you, Rick. For a change of pace, let's consider a summer road trip or maybe a weekend getaway to an exciting city. We look at some of the sites you can enjoy in San Francisco. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. We're at 877 rick uh, My name is Holger Zimmer and I have a Zungenbrecher. I got a tongue twister for you in German. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend Ananas. Which just basically means very sweetly eight aged ants. We're eating pineapple in the evening. Acht alte Ameisen aßen am Abend ananas. There's a ton of fun and interesting things to do in San Francisco any time of year. Kimberly Lovato joins us now to get the real flavor of the city that the locals enjoy, away from the tourist zone at Fisherman's Wharf. Kimberly is the co-author of a handy guide called A Hundred Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. She takes your suggestions at 877-333-7425 as we explore things to include on your San Francisco must-do list. Kimberly, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me, Rick. San
0: Francisco is so iconic in so many ways. I mean, you can think about music, about hippies, uh, Chinese heritage, the gold rush, gay culture, great cuisine, and the sights give a visitor gateways into each of these fascinating slices of San Francisco. So your book, you've got 100 places. It's just a fun book to page through and, and get ideas for a visit. If you're thinking about America's oldest Chinatown, what what sort of site would you want to see?
2: I love walking around Chinatown, and it's someplace I love to take out-of-town guests. You know, one of the greatest things I did recently, because I hadn't spent a lot of time exploring Chinatown, and I took a, a walking tour of Chinatown with a local from the neighborhood who walked us down alleys. Of course, the Golden Gate Fortune Cookie Company is a great place to go. You just follow your nose. She talked about the different types of families that lived in the neighborhood. Back in the day, we tasted tea along Grant Street. We went to eat dim sum at the oldest dim sum restaurant in America. It happens to also be in the Mm. oldest Chinatown in America.
0: So it sounds like a, a walking tour is a good way to lace that all together.
2: It is a great way because a lot of people stick on Grant Street, which is totally fine. It has the beautiful red paper lanterns and whatnot but there is actually a lot to see off the uh, the little alleyways and other streets. Let's talk
0: now about the gold rush dimension of San Francisco. Of course, there's no gold in San Francisco, but in 1849, all sorts of people rushed to California for the gold rush, and I think San Francisco probably made more money off of that than the, the gold miners themselves. What do you see in San Francisco that evokes those days 170 years ago?
2: Well, of course, we have the San Francisco 49ers that evoke those days, <laughs> but... One of the things that I recommend people do, and I I kind of do it myself in small pieces, is we have here the Barbary Coast Trail. And a lot of people who walk around San Francisco might see these brass. Basically, they look almost like compasses or stars in the sidewalk around downtown the Financial District. And there are actually 180 of these, and they kind of trace San Francisco. They go from the Old Mint through the Financial District, Chinatown, Jackson Square, up into North Beach and Fisherman's Wharf, and you might stop at the Pony Express headquarters site or the first Asian temple in the U.S., the Old Mint and Gold Rush Museum, in fact, with some stagecoaches from the Gold Rush. Whoa,
0: so this is 180 points that are indicated by little brass medallions in the pavement, and you can just literally walk along that trail and learn yeah, all about Yeah, and
2: there's a downloadable map online that you can do half of them if you want. You can mm-hmm. do the whole thing. It's a great way to kind of get out and walk around too. I think San Francisco just happens to be a great walking city as well as long as you're not going up the hill and most of this is flat so it's great.
0: When I was a little kid uh, San Francisco was famous for hippies and the summer of love and hate district. What do you see today that people might want to get nostalgic about that? Where, Where would you go and what would you see?
2: I would definitely still go back to the hate. We call it the hate. Hate Ashbury, you know the famous corner. But Hate mm-hmm. Street is still a great place to to walk around and pick up your own tie dye and you know peace glasses and whatnot. And you still uh, see you know, a lot of uh, different characters, and it's also a great place to walk around. And
0: there's a, a rock and roll history museum at the Fillmore.
2: Oh, the Fillmore Auditorium. So that's on Fillmore, and that is a obviously a fantastic place that has seen legendary bands come through there over the years. Even though it opened in 1912, it didn't become the Fillmore until, I believe, the mid-50s. And one of the greatest things, of course, besides all the famous bands that have come up through there, is the posters, the concert posters that are up on the mezzanine level. And you can literally walk through <laughs> rock history so by through like these posters. Museum. Yeah. It now, is, yes.
0: Now, San Francisco was a big deal for gay culture back when it was more difficult to be homosexual than it is now. And to this day, the Castro District is a, a lively quarter. What would we find in the Castro District if we were touring San Francisco?
2: I have to say a lot of great restaurants and shops are there. The Castro Theater is a fantastic place right on Castro Street. And if you haven't seen a movie there, it's one of those old cinemas with the organ. It's famous for its Castro sing-alongs, which are fantastic for families and people dress up in costume and really get into it. Of course, in June is Pride is celebrated here. Right. I think it's one of the biggest ones in the U.S. It's been going on for 49 years, I think, this year.
0: Something that San Francisco is understandably proud about is its cuisine and its food. And I noticed 25 of the top places to see or experience in San Francisco were actually places to eat in your book. Uh, Talk a little bit about the food. What's a San Francisco sort of uh, classic that you want to be sure to eat?
2: Oh, well, for sure, a, a San Francisco classic would be a bowl of cioppino, I think. It is a seafood and fish stew. That has a tomato sauce base, a lot of times Dungeness crab, which is also another San Francisco treat, if you will. Uh, We're in the Dungeness crab season right now, and people love to go down to the wharf and eat that. Mexican food is a great must-eat in San Francisco, I think, especially the mission-style burrito, as we call them here.
0: So what is a mission-style burrito?
2: <laughs> I call it the hefty alter ego to a normal-sized burrito. It's, oh, okay. it's about the size of a forearm, if you will, and it's stuffed with, with meat and rice and beans and everything else you can imagine, and it's rolled up and it's huge.
0: Sounds like you could feed a family with one of those.
2: You could feed a family, <laughs> for sure.
0: And um, for Chinese food, you, you were talking about going through Chinatown. What was the highlight for the edible highlight for you in Chinatown?
2: In Chinatown, I mean, I love dim sum. Like I mentioned, Hong A Tea Room, it's the oldest dim sum restaurant in in the United States, and Mm. it's also very affordable. Uh, Egg tarts are something great to eat in San Francisco. They they look like little lemon tarts, but they are custard tarts, and people line up at the Golden Gate Bakery to get them, and sometimes Mm. they have them and sometimes they don't, so it's a little bit of a mystery as well.
0: Let's say if you're interested in booze and you want to do something classically (laughs) San Francisco, where would you go?
2: Something classically San Francisco that I think might surprise people. We have great bars here, no doubt. I I can't keep up with the bars. Rooftop bars are a big deal right now Mm -hmm. in San Francisco. But if I were to say do something in San Francisco to get a drink, I would say go to a tiki bar. San Francisco loves its tiki bars of course we have the Tonga Room which is the classic at the bottom of the Fairmont Hotel but there's always a new tiki bar opening up I mean Smuggler's Cove and Pagan Idol are popular ones here in San Francisco but
0: Are those popular with just with tourists or are they popular with, as a local hangout?
2: No, with locals too really? People love to go tiki Yes
0: <laughs> My goodness I'll put that on my list
2: <laughs> Call me up if you'd like to meet for a Mai Tai <laughs> I didn't realize
0: that Okay Now I know food trucks are really trendy well all over but I think of food trucks a lot in California. What's your advice for food trucks?
2: Yeah, one of the things I love that we have the Soma Street food park. It's in the south of Market. It's actually a fixed food truck park. Another thing that's great to do in the summer is in the Presidio. The Presidio is beautiful and there's an event called Off the Grid and it's very family friendly. It happens on Sundays, I think between May and October. Maybe 30 or 40 food trucks line up. There's live music often. People can just pack their picnics. They can bring their dogs and their kids.
0: All right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm grilling Kimberly Lovato on her book, "100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die." Our phone number is eight seven seven three 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 seven four two five. And Ed's calling in from Valencia in California. Hi, Ed.
4: Hey, Rick. How you doing? Hey, Kimberly. Hey, Ed.
0: Thanks for your call. What do you have in mind for San Francisco, Ed?
4: You know, I wanted to recommend something to your listeners that I thought was just absolutely phenomenal in downtown San Francisco. And it was the Market Street Railway, which is the streetcar system, the E line and the F line, which actually goes along the Embarcadero down to Fisherman's Wharf. It goes down the Market Street. I think it goes close to the Haight. I'm not sure. The end of the line there, and then it goes south toward the ballpark and down toward the Caltrain station. And it's just a wonderful, wonderful way to see the city, to see the downtown area. It's, I think, $2.75. They have a museum that's very close to the ferry terminal. And it's just a wonderful way of, you know, they're rolling historical landmarks in their own right. And some of the cars are actually from Europe or... Mm. Australia or New Zealand or mm. China. Some of the the cars are foreign cars that have been refurbished. In addition to uh, cars from all over the big cities in the U.S. that had street cars.
2: He makes a good point. I mean, these are not the cable cars that everyone knows, but those historic street cars are wonderful. And the E line is the one you're talking about. And I think it goes from AT and Park, and it basically goes all along the water, almost to the wharf. So it's incredibly scenic. Mm. You can get on and off if you want, and there's a lot of stops now along the water that. 25 years ago, used to not be there. The Ferry Building, the uh, Hands-On Museum, is now along the water. The cable cars are also; those are a San Francisco must. I mean, mm-hmm. you can't come to San Francisco and not ride.
0: What's the di- is the difference between a streetcar and a and a cable car? Just the cable car is on a hill and it has a cable powering it.
2: Well, the cable cars are actually pulled by cables underground. Right. So okay. there are three cable car lines that go around the city, basically, and they are actually pulled by a hook and this cable on the tracks.
0: And you hear that rattling under the street, even when a cable car's not there. Hey, Ed, when you're talking about those streetcars, the E line is the one that goes along Market Street. Does that actually stop at the Market Street Railway Museum?
4: Yes, it does. Actually, the E line, I think, is the shorter one. I think it goes from the ferry terminal down to the ballpark and to the Caltrain station. Uh The F line, I believe, is the one that goes all along Market Street then goes right by the museum. It'll be on your right if you're taking it toward the terminal, the ferry terminal, and then it goes along the Embarcadero and makes a loop at Fisherman's Wharf and comes back.
0: Now, have you been to that Market Street Railway Museum?
4: I have. It's a very small, uh, it's not a very large museum. There's no admission charge, but it shows you all of the history connected with just the streetcars. that San Francisco used to have a plethora of lines that went all over downtown, and and the streetcar lines just crisscrossed
2: all over the city, all
4: the way out to the Cliff House. And it's just a phenomenal place. Highly recommend it.
0: Thanks for your call, Ed. Good tips. Oh, you're quite welcome. Good talking to you all. You bye, bet. bye.
2: Thanks, Ed. Yeah, he's right. It's the F line that goes up. They kind of meet up at the San Francisco Railway Museum, and okay. the E line goes south, and the F goes along the railway. Oh. So,
0: All right. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Kimberly Lovato. She and Joe Robinson co-authored the guide, 100 Things to Do in San Francisco Before You Die. It's part of the local interest series from Reedy Press, which highlights things to do in dozens of cities across the United States. Kimberly also wrote a culinary travel book about the Dordogne region of France. It's called Walnut Wine and Truffle Groves. You'll find a link to her website and books with this week's show at RickSteves.com/radio. Jerry's calling from Los Angeles. Jerry, thanks for your call. Uh, hello, Rick. Yeah, you have a thought or a tip on San Francisco?
3: Oh, i got a big tip. Let me tell you, I love San Francisco. I live in Los Angeles. And I think one of the the most golden things about San Francisco is the free tram that runs from the Oakland Airport to the BART station at the Coliseum. Mm. And uh, what I like to do is I like to fly it up there just for the day. Mm. And it's so easy to do and relatively inexpensive. And I just fly up there to Oakland. It has to be Oakland. Take the uh, free tram to the BART station and the BART right into uh, Embarcadero downtown san francisco and then i go to my favorite museum the exploratorium and i just have a ball i spend the whole day it's just a very cheap easy no motel no parking fees no car to rent and then i turn around and come back after the whole day at the museum i turn around and come back to la
0: tell us about the exploratorium museum your favorite museum in san francisco
3: well it's a a hands-on science museum with interactive exhibits it's a museum of science art and human perception and what I like about it is, it teaches things about like how vacuum works and how inertia works and physics. I find that stuff interesting, so I just uh, oh. say, "Hey, I got something to do for the day. I'll go
0: up there." So you've done a Disneyland, and you can try something different. Probably no more expensive.
3: About the same price, uh, surprisingly <laughs> enough. You know, you, what you have to do is get your favorite airline and get online with them, and sometimes they'll let you know about uh, low airfares and cheap right. fares, and, and you just buy up a whole block of them, oh. and boom, it becomes a, a fun thing to do. Once a month, I was doing it. Once you get to the Embarcadero, it's a springboard for the rest of the city.
0: Yeah, and paging through Kimberly's book, I was just thinking San Francisco. Its middle name is entertainment, you know?
3: Oh, yeah. It's just a
0: top-notch city. All I right. loved it. Gary, thanks for your call. Well, thank you, Rick. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Kimberly Lovato. Kimberly, do you know the um, Exploratorium?
2: Oh, yes, I do. So I used to live by the old Exploratorium when it was in the Palace of Fine Arts, and it's a much bigger, grander, much more modern facility now Mm -hmm. on the Embarcadero, and it's lovely, and it's great for families, it's great for kids, and, and they even have a, I think it's called After Dark, Exploratorium After Dark, monthly cocktail party for just adults.
0: Well. Very nice. Jerry can take the late flight home then.
2: Exactly. Or just spend the night one night.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. All right. Hey, Monique is calling in from West Newbury, in Massachusetts. Monique, thanks for giving us a ring.
2: Hi. One of my favorite things to do in San Francisco is to walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. I had read before my trip that they're constantly painting it just because it's such a large project. And on this particular walk across, we could hear and smell the painting going on down below us. We could hear the sounds of the crew spraying the bridge. And so it was kind of neat to experience that. And then later on, I had noticed that there were tiny little spatterings of paint all over my camera and on my pants that had just kind of flown up in the air. And so it was a really interesting souvenir that I'll never forget.
0: Oh, I love it. Did you know about that, Kimberly, getting little orange dots on the, when you hike across the Golden Gate Bridge?
2: I had no idea. And you know, (laughs) the funny thing is, is I know that it's painted all the time and, I have not experienced that, but now I want to go back, and I want, I want splatters of international orange paint yeah. on my camera.
0: <laughs> you know, that's one of the most memorable experiences I had is hiking over the Golden Gate Bridge. It's an amazing, beautiful experience. It seems to be designed to have people come across, and I didn't know about my orange splatter either, but it was certainly <laughs> a good experience. Yes,
2: yeah, definitely a great souvenir.
0: Now, the Golden Gate Park would be something you could tie in with that. Tell us about uh, Golden Gate Park, Kimberly.
2: Yeah, I mean, Golden Gate Park is not close to Golden Gate Bridge, but it shares the same name. But Golden Gate Park is truly a place to spend a day. Maybe Jerry from Los Angeles will spend a day there next time. It is, it's a wonderland. It's larger than Central Park. They have great museums in there. They have lakes. I mean, you can rent a paddle boat in there. They have a resident herd of bison. There are windmills. My favorite building there is the Conservatory of Flowers. And it's a really just wonderful place to walk around. Beautiful flowers. There are concerts there. Great concerts in the summer are held there—one in August and one in October—and playgrounds. I mean, it's it's a wonderful place.
0: All right. Hey, Monique. Thanks for your call. Thank you. Do you still have the orange dots on your pants and camera?
2: Well, the pants were maternity pants, which I don't wear anymore, <laughs> <laughs> and I have a new camera since then. So, uh, but you, it was really—you oh, cool need to for come back. <laughs> I did have
0: them. You go back for an uh, upgrade on your dots. Yes okay take care thanks for your call
2: thanks bye
0: this is travel with rick steves we've been talking with kimberly lovato her book is 100 things to do in san francisco before you die we could talk all day about san francisco kimberly but we're out of time and let's just close with with you suggesting to me and our listeners if you've been going to san francisco and you've seen alcatraz and you've done the embarcadero and you've done all the predictable stuff What's the best day of seeing things that we've never heard of? Lay out just a, a short list of things that you'd say you just, nobody knows about these things, but they're great.
2: Well, I have two that I can think of. So you mentioned Alcatraz, and I absolutely think it's essential to go. But what a lot of people don't realize are there are these beautiful gardens on Alcatraz that prisoners and officers and their families took care of when when it was a working prison. They lasted, and now they have been maintained, and there are actually docent-led tours of these gardens. So I think it's the softer side of Alcatraz that no one knows.
0: What a surprise that would be. What a delightful way to compliment it is a, a delightful visit surprise. to this 20-old prison. Yeah, and what else would you do?
2: I love going out to Land's End, so I'm not sure if people know where that is. It's at the western edge of the city. A lot of people have probably heard of the iconic restaurant, The Cliff House, but the ruins of the Sutro Baths there, and there are these beautiful just walking trails. I mean, you can walk all the way along these cliffs and bluffs and beaches and have an extraordinary view of the Golden Gate Bridge as well. And within seconds of getting out of the hustle and bustle of, of the city, you're you're at this beautiful, where the city meets the sea, really, on the Pacific Ocean. And it's, it's really extraordinary.
0: Wow, that sounds great. All right, Kimberly Lovato, thanks so much for giving us an insight into a city you clearly know very well, San Francisco.
2: Thank you for having me.
4: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tappan, Isaac Kaplan Wilner, and Casmira Hall, at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KERA Dallas and to Sports Byline USA in San Francisco for studio help this week, and to Sarah McCormick for editing support. There's more online at ricksteves.com/radio.
2: Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.